So it's going to be Romans chapter 15, and it's going to be just verse 4. For everything that was written in the past, meaning in the scripture, was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence gets a $100 million boost. That was the headline for a Nature magazine story back in 2015, after the Russian billionaire Yuri Milner donated money to the Breakthrough Listen Project, which is located in the University of California, Berkeley. Now, the project uses two giant telescopes, one in the northern hemisphere and one in the southern hemisphere, uh, which scan the heavens and listen for radio signals and look for laser transmissions coming from outer space. The scientists who work with the Breakthrough Listen Project believe that finding such would indicate that there's intelligent life out there somewhere, perhaps trying to communicate with us. Well, this is very similar to the earlier SETI project, which began in the 1980s, but uh, the updated equipment allows the astronomers to cover 10 times more space and to process information 100 times faster. They say that the telescopes are so sensitive that you could detect a 100-watt laser from 100 trillion miles away, and that's a long way. So what have they heard so far? Radio waves coming from little green men in outer space saying, we're here, we're here, we're here. <laughs> no. After years of listening, astronomers still haven't received any messages indicating that there's intelligent life out there. But the, as the late uh, astrophysicist Stephen Hawking said, he wasn't discouraged despite all the lack of results, so he said this. He said, in an infinite universe, there must be life elsewhere. There's no bigger question. It's time to commit to finding the answer. Now, I've heard some atheistic uh, scientists suggest that if we ever found that there was life on other uh, planets, that would prove that God does, doesn't exist. I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us whether there's life on other planets or not, but if there is, that would mean that God was simply the creator of that life as well. What do you think? Are there, is there int intellectual, intelligent, extraterrestrial life out there somewhere? Well, I have to tell you, I know the answer. And the answer is yes, there definitely is. Because far above our earth and beyond the stars, there's a place called heaven. And in that heaven, there's a person who exists named God. Is he trying to communicate with us? Yes. Not through giant telescopes that beam things down, but through his word, the Bible, which we simply have to read to find out about him. Folks, listen carefully. God has revealed himself to humanity, not only through the things that he's created, but more importantly, through the book that he inspired. The Bible is the word of God, his communication to mankind. On the Bible Society, a Bible Society survey a few years back, back in 2013, they found that 88% of respondents said that they owned a Bible, 80% think that the Bible is sacred, 61% wish that they read the Bible more, and on average, households had 4.4 Bibles in the United States. And yet, a majority, 51 or 57%, said that they read the Bible less than four times a year, and only 26% said that they read it regularly. Now, I asked to account for the discrepancy between what people said about the Bible and what they actually did with it. Uh, Doug Birdsall, the American Bible Society head, said this, I see the problem as analogous to obesity in America. We have an awful lot of people who realize they're overweight, but they don't follow a diet. 
people realize the Bible has value that would help us in our spiritual health, but they just don't read it. Well, today we presented Bibles to Tori and Candace, and uh, we did so with the hope that they would read them, and that as a result, it would transform their lives. But to encourage them and the rest of us to do just that, we want to take some time to think about the nature of God's Word, the Bible, and His purpose in giving it to us as a people. So why don't we pray and then get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us in the things that we uh, are going to look at and think about today so that we may be pleasing in your sight. For we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what should we say? Well, let's, let's break this into two parts. We'll talk about the nature of the Bible and then the purpose and the value of the Bible. So the nature of the Bible. Now, I have to tell you, in order to make the New York Times bestsellers list, you have to sell at least 5,000 copies of your book each week. Right now, on the top of that list is The Investigator by John Sanford. It's a thriller. Uh, that's followed by It Ends With Us. It's a novel about a battered wife. Coming in third is Where the Crawdads Sing. That one's been on the top of the list for 144 weeks. But I noticed as I looked at the list yesterday, nowhere do they mention the Bible. And that's interesting because if they did go just based on sales and the books that are handed out, the Bible would be on the top of the list every week. Did you know that every year 100 million Bibles are printed worldwide? Nobody knows for certain the number that have been printed, but since the Gutenberg came up with this printing press, it's estimated that between 5 and 7 billion Bibles have been printed. Well, before the printing press, Bibles had to be handwritten. Calculated in today's currency, at the time, if you wanted to buy a Bible, it would have been like $40,000. But now you can go to Walmart, I checked this morning, you can get one for $3.99, and if you can't afford that, the Gideons will hand you one for free. Well, what should we say about the nature of this book, the Bible? Well, the first thing we have to say is that it's an ancient book. It's an ancient book. The earliest parts of the Bible were written by Moses more than 3,500 years ago. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, was written by the Apostle John in 90 AD. So that's about 2,000 years ago. So from the first part of the Bible being written to the last part was 1,500 years. Second thing we have to say, though, is it's an amazing book. Why do I say that? Well, because the Bible, first of all, is not actually a book. It's a collection of books. There's 66 books bound in one volume. These books were written by over 40 different authors from various backgrounds. Some were from high society, like kings and prophets and priests. Others were common men, like shepherds and fishermen. One author was a doctor and another was a tax collector. The first part of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, was written in two different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. The second part was written in Greek. So you have 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors living on three different continents using three different languages, and yet the amazing part is when you read it, it has one consistent message with no contradictions. Now, do you think you could start a story between the two of you, pass it on to your friends, have them pass it on to their kids and your kids and the kids' 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 kids over a period of, oh, say, 300 years and yet have a consistent story that comes out of it? Seems unlikely. What makes the Bible even more amazing, though, is that uh, when you read this ancient manuscripts here, you find out that it speaks to the issues of our day and it correctly interprets the events of our life and tells us what human nature is really like. Take just one example, the story of Adam and Eve. Most of you are familiar with that. Remember what happened? God told them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Eve took a piece of fruit, ate from it, and gave it to a uh, Adam, and he ate it as well. But as soon as they did, 
It said they realized that they were naked and they felt ashamed. And so they went and they hid uh, themselves and covered themselves with fig leaves. And then they heard God walking through the garden. And he asked Adam, where are you? And he said, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Did you eat from the tree? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And what's the first thing he said? The woman, the woman, she, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Eve, what have you done? Oh, the, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate. Okay, put it in a modern thing. Uh-oh, mom and dad are home. They're going to find out we broke the vase. Quick, hide. Billy, did you break the vase? No, it was Jerry. Jerry, did you break the vase? No, it was little green Martians that came when we weren't looking. Has anything changed? Whether it's a child caught with his hand in a cookie jar, a congressman caught taking bribes, it plays out the same way it did in the Garden of Eden. The Bible is an amazing book because it allows for a correct interpretation of the events that we see and experience in our life. To put in the words of the psalmist, in your light, meaning through your word, in your light, we see light, we see things correctly. Well, the Bible is an ancient book, it's an amazing book, but it's that because it's an inspired book. Now, I'm not saying that's just merely inspiring. If you were to listen to Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream, you might find it inspiring, but it's not inspired. Theologians speak of the inspiration of Scripture, but probably a better way to speak of it would be the expiration of Scripture. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy, one of his associates. He said this, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible teaches us that over that 1,500-year period of history, God had revealed himself to certain men, prophets, and also to apostles in the New Testament. God communicated his message to these men, who in turn communicated to others, and then recorded it in a book for those who came afterwards. So, So these are not myth stories that the biblical authors made up. Rather, they're records of what they heard and experienced as spokesmen for God. Peter, reflecting on this special revelation made to him, and John and James, when they were on the mountain, said this. They said, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic word, meaning the Old Testament, as something completely reliable, and you do well to pay attention to it, as a light shining in a dark place until the day uh, dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke for God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And of course, if this book really is God's word, then several things about its nature would be obvious and flow from it. First of all, it's truthful in everything it says. If science says that the cosmos exploded out of nothing and evolved into life over millions and billions of years, but the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it in six days, then science is wrong. Actually, scientists, unbelieving scientists, are wrong. Because God's word, is the, the Bible is God's word, and he can't be wrong. Second thing we'd have to say is there can't be contradictions. God doesn't speak with a forked tongue. He doesn't say one thing on one page and then contradict himself on another page. 
And third, we'd have to say that it's the final authority, God's word is, for all matters. I mean, in our justice system, if you're not happy with the decision you give, you can appeal to a higher court. But God's the highest court. He's the highest judge. And his ruling is the final say on everything. Reminds me of a story I read about a guy named Arthur Pinelli. He was a one-time uh, third baseman for the Cincinnati Reds. But after finishing his career, uh, he went into being an umpire for the Major League Baseball. And that's from 1935 to 56. The first year that he umpired um, was the last year that Babe Ruth played baseball. And he was up to bat at one time, and you know, he had two strikes on him, and he threw another ball, the pitcher did, and it came in low and inside. At least it looked low and inside to Babe Ruth. And, and, yet, and yet Arthur Pinelli called him out. And <laughs> Ruth got really, really mad about this. And he, so he turns to the stand, because everybody thought it was, a, it was actually a ball, not a strike. And he pointed to the stands and he said this. He said, there's 40,000 people in this park who know that ball was a, or that, that was a ball, tomato head. <laughs> Perhaps, said Pinelli, but there's only one opinion that matters, and that's mine. You're out of here. <laughs> now listen carefully, folks. When it comes to all these contentious moral issues that we're dealing with in our day, there's a lot of people who say, well, I get to decide for myself what's right for me and what's wrong. Or we should look at the polls to see what the majority of Americans say. Or we should look to the Supreme Court and they can tell us what's right and what's wrong. Well, I want to tell you something. There's only one opinion that matters, and that's God's. It says in Isaiah 32, 33, 22, it says, for the, God, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawkeeper, our giver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. God who is in heaven has communicated with us who are on earth by speaking to us through the words found in the Bible. Okay, well, it's a supernatural revelation from our creator, but what's it for? Why was the Bible given? What's its value? That brings us to our second point, the value and the purpose of the Bible. Now, I mentioned that you can buy a Bible at Walmart for under $5. Do you know what the most expensive Bible ever sold went for? It was the Gutenberg Bible. It sold for $5.5 million back in 1987, which would make it uh, worth $12 million today. Now, back in 2012, a Bible was sold uh, in England that belonged at one time to Elvis Presley. It went for $94,000. It had his name embossed on the front. It had notes in it and that he had written himself and a lot of verses that were underlined. Sadly, one of them was, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, you can buy Bibles with expensive covers. You can get some that have pigskin. They don't call them pigskin. They call it Berkshire leather. <laughs> I mean, who wants a Bible that says pigskin on it, right? But you can get it with cowhide, calf skin, goat skin. Did you know you can even get it with kangaroo skin? Now, I'm ge- I've never seen one, but I'm guessing it probably has a little pouch in the front that you can... But what makes a Bible valuable is not what's on the outside, but what's found on the inside, the truth that's revealed there. I mean, think about it. The Bible addresses the most important issues of life. It tells us who God is and what he's like. According to those verses that Tori read earlier, everybody knows there's a God. But what kind of God is he? Is he like the God of the Muslims who commands people to kill everybody? Is he powerful and yet so high and remote that we really can't have a personal relationship to him? Is is he like the God that the ancient Greeks and and Romans worshipped, who are really more like supernatural, elevated human beings? I mean, the Roman gods could be tricked. They could be bribed. They they sinned. They made mistakes. 
You've heard people say before, they say things like this, well, the God I believe in would never do X, Y, and Z. But here's the problem. That's the God they believe in. That's the God they conjure up in their own mind. That's the God of their own imaginations. To know God and what he's like, you have to look in his word where he's revealed himself as to his character and his attributes. The second thing, though, is that it, it tells us who we are. And it tells us why we're here. Back in 1992, Texas billionaire Ross Perot ran for president. He chose for his running mate, James Stockdale. Uh, Stockdale was a retired admiral uh, from the Navy, and he had been held prisoner in North Vietnam during the war for seven and a half years where he had been tortured. So he was a war hero, and of course that would make him a great running mate, right? Well, it seemed like a good pick, but the problem was that Perot announced his pick just a short time before the vice presidential um, debate. And so Stockdale went there, but he was, really wasn't prepared for it. And not having prepared, he thought he would introduce himself by saying this, Who am I? And why am I here? Well, the problem was, he was only trying to introduce himself, but he looked confused through the whole night. And so it really looked like he did not know who he was and why he was there. Now I have to say something that's really sad. They mocked him on Saturday Night Live the next week, and that, that was it for him, right? He had to turn up his hearing aid one time because he couldn't hear. Dennis Miller, the comedian, defended him. He said the reason he had to turn up his hearing aid was because he had had his eardrums punctured by the North Vietnamese. And then Dennis Miller said, you know, he committed the unpardonable sin in America. He didn't look good on TV. Tells you where we're at. Well, there's a lot of people who go through life confused and dazed, not knowing why they're here or what it's really about. But the Bible tells us that who we are. We're people created in God's image. And it tells us why we're here, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So you were created by God. You were created for God to find your joy in God. As the church father, St. Augustine, said in his prayer, Lord, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Have you known people who are never at ease? They're always looking for something more. Well, it also tells us what our problem is. What's the biggest problem in your life right now? Is it a relationship? Is it your job? Is it your neighbors? What's the biggest problem for our country right now? Depending on who you ask, you'd get different answers. Some would say, well, the biggest problem we face is the liberal media, fake news, corrupt politicians, crime, racism. The poor don't work. The rich don't pay their fair share. The problem is Congress. The problem is the Supreme Court. It's Trump. It's Biden. It's Hollywood. It's Wall Street. No, no, it's on and on and on. Those may be problems. But that's not our biggest problem. No, our biggest problem, your biggest problem, is sin that alienates us from a holy God. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That verse that Tori read earlier said, there is none righteous, not even one. All of us come into this world with a sin nature inherited from our first father, Adam. We're born rebels against God, and that's why you don't have to teach a child to be selfish. It comes naturally to us. And you've never met in your entire life one person who doesn't sin. And so we know that it's universal and it's inbred. A lot of young people are concerned about getting an education, getting a job, paying off student loans. There's a story about a guy in the Bible, a young man, who had already achieved almost all of his goals. We're told that he was very rich and he'd become a leader in his community. And though uh, he was very religious, he still felt there was something missing in his life. And so he came to Jesus, and he asked him, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At least he's thinking about the big issues. 
Notice, though, that he thinks there's something he does that's going to earn this. So Jesus goes along with them for the moment. He says this, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Really? Had he kept all the commandments all the time? I mean, sure, he hadn't murdered anyone, probably, but how many people have? But did he hear what Jesus had said in an earlier sermon when he said this? You've heard it said by our ancestors, you shall not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's even angry with somebody, meaning unjustly, is subject to judgment. And if someone says to call somebody an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if someone curses another person, he's in danger of the fires of hell. I mean, this guy never stole anything from anyone. Not once, not even as a kid. Well, maybe. Did he bear false witness? Had he never told a lie in his life? How many lies do you think you've told in your life? More than I can count. What do we call a person who lies? A liar. Did he uh, always honor his parents? Never grumbled as a kid when they gave him chores? Never sassed his mom? Never disobeyed his dad? This guy doesn't even, either he doesn't have a good memory or else he has a poor understanding of what it means to keep these commandments. But rather than rolling his eyes at him, Jesus goes on to say this. It's, it, we read this. It says, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said to him, okay, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he owned much property. Oh, by the way, Jesus didn't tell everyone to give away all their stuff. But the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Meaning God has to be first in our life. But God didn't come first in this man's life, money did. And so when Jesus challenged this man's God, he turned on Jesus' offer. And of course, the problem isn't that we just sin occasionally. It's not like you burp at the table and your mom told you you had bad manners. I mean, it's not that we fail to cross the T's and dot the I's. We sin in many ways and many times. Think about it. We've, we did the numbers. You did the numbers on this. I had the calculator. If a person sinned only 10 times a day, because think about the way you can sin. You can sin by the things that you do, the things that you say, the things that you think, the things that you fail to do that you should have done, the things that you should have said that you didn't. Okay, if a person were to sin only 10 times a day, they'd have to be pretty good. But if you sin 10 times a day and there's 365 days in a year, that means you'll sin 3,650 times in one year. And if you live to be 85, we did the numbers, it comes out to be 310,250 sins in your lifetime. Now let me ask you a question. Is any criminal going before a judge who has over 300,000 counts against him, all provable, is the judge going to say, you seem like a nice person, let's just let you go? Well, just judges have to break law or punish lawbreakers. And folks, that's the case when it comes to the supreme judge, God. Now, most people don't think their sins are a problem because they don't think about their sins, or at least they try not to think about their sins. That's what you were talking about when it says suppressing the truth. Or else they think that their sins are not a big deal to God because it's not a big deal to them. But they are a big deal, a big, big deal. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. He pays us for our sins in death. Because of our sin, God has given each of us the death penalty. 
Well, that's our greatest problem. God is holy, and we are not. God is just, and we are criminals who have violated his law, and our own conscience tells us that. But the same Bible that tells us about our problem tells us about God's solution to our problem. Now, were you good at math? You know, I have not had a math class since I was in eighth grade. I was required to take algebra in ninth grade, but I was a mouthy kid, and so I was always lipping off to Miss Hop, my teacher, and she said, you know what, why don't you just go to the library? I said, I think I will. She said, you can go there the whole week. I said, I think I'll go there the whole quarter. And she said, you can go there the whole year. Well, she, we didn't have any after that. <laughs> so I sat in the library and took three Fs. I did nine years of college, and I managed to get through without having to take one math class. Well, even if you like math and you were good at it, I'll bet there were times that you just simply couldn't figure out the problems. You couldn't find the answer. Folks, listen, when it comes to sin, we can't come up with a solution because no one ever has other than God. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. The human race fell with Adam in the Garden of Eden, and all of our philosophers and all of our politicians and all our psychologists and all of our counselors cannot put mankind back together again. But God has come up with a solution to the problem. I asked the girls at the beginning, I said, I said uh, um, what, what does the word gospel mean? And they got the correct answer. It means good news. Well, what's the good news? Well, the good news is that God has done something. He's come up with a solution to our sin problem. God, in his infinite wisdom, has come up with a way for us to deal with our sins so that we can be reconciled by him, or to him. How did he do it? Well, he did this. He sent his son into the world, Jesus, to take on human nature and become one of us. Jesus grew up as a Jew in Israel under the law of Moses, but unlike other Jews and unlike other people, he kept all the commandments of God perfectly. Unlike us, he never lied. He never swore. He never disobeyed his parents. He never had a dirty thought or an unkind word. He never stole anything. He never made a cruel comment. He always loved God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength, and he always loved his neighbor just as much as he loved himself. Now, death is the wages of sin, but Jesus never sinned, unlike us, so he didn't deserve to die. But he did die on a cross after a friend of his betrayed him. And after he was falsely accused by the religious leader and unjustly condemned by the governor Pontius Pilate. But Jesus said, no one takes my life away from me, but I give it up by my own accord. Jesus didn't die as a martyr. He died as a sacrifice for sin. You see, when Jesus was hanging on that cross, God laid the sins of those who would trust in Jesus on him so that he was punished instead of us. God poured out his wrath on Jesus against my sin. The sinless one died in the place of the guilty. And so God, in his justice, made sure sins were punished. But God, in his mercy, allowed Jesus to take the punishment instead of me. And when a sinner sees and understands and believes that Jesus died on the cross for his sins, God at that moment counts Jesus' death as the payment for their sins. He also credits Jesus' righteousness, his perfect record of law-keeping, to the sinner's account. So now the sinner possesses that righteousness they need to stand before God, the righteousness not of their own, but that provided by Jesus. And to prove this sacrifice was acceptable to him, he raised Jesus from the dead three days later, thus defeating death. And here's the amazing part to me. 
this forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation to God, along with the eternal life that comes because Jesus conquered death, is available to anybody and everybody if they would simply turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. Wow. Pastor Doug, you're, you're really telling me that God will drop all the charges against me, set me free if I simply throw myself on the mercy of the court and ask him to forgive me on the basis of what Jesus did? Yeah, I want to tell you somebody who did that. Two weeks before he died, it was Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer who had killed people. Jeffrey Dahmer who had raped boys. Jeffrey Dahmer who had eaten people. Two weeks before he died, someone gave him the gospel. And he thought, I'm a sinner. Now, can Jeffrey Dahmer get his life cleaned up? Can he undo what he's done? No, all he could do is throw himself at the mercy of the court and ask God to forgive him based on what Jesus did. And he did. Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven. I'll tell you something else that's shocking. Mother Teresa is probably in hell. Why? Because Mother Teresa did not believe that Jesus was the only way to heaven. She believed that Hindus could get to heaven being Hindus. Muslims could get to heaven being Muslims. Someone I know of was in her house. There were idols all over the wall. Isn't that interesting? How many people would believe that Mother Teresa died and went to hell and Jeffrey Dahmer went to heaven? It's got to be because of God, not the individual. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that's what I've been telling Candace and Tori Wednesday after Wednesday in confirmation over the last couple of years, and that's what I'm telling you today. Speaking to the religious leaders of his day who studied the Bible and yet somehow missed that at point, the whole point of the Bible, Jesus said this, you study the scripture diligently because you believe that in them you have eternal life. But it's these very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Candace and Tori, we hope that you will read and study your Bibles that we're giving you today. We want you to understand the Bible well, but most of all, we want you to know what the scripture points to. Who? Jesus Christ, because he alone can grant you eternal life. You along with everyone here is being invited today to come to Jesus. Don't refuse and fail to gain eternal life. Jesus himself said, what's the profit of man if he gains the whole world and not loses his own soul? And what would a man give in exchange for his soul? So I said, Pastor Chris, I presented those Bibles to you. And, uh, but I want to tell you about another Bible that was presented on uh, Confirmation Sunday. It's the one I have in front of me right now. Well, this Bible, according to the page here, was presented to Jamie Nelson by Grandpa and Grandma Brunges on Confirmation Day, October 27th, 1996. Now, this Bible here is a little worn. You can see I got some tape on it. But it didn't have tape on it when I bought it. As a matter of fact, when I bought it at the Goodwill, it was brand new, at least looked brand new. There was no writing in it. The pages were still crisp when I turned them. And that made me think. Okay, this was given to Jamie. Jamie's a girl by her grandparents. And yet it ended up in the Goodwill never being used. I was thinking, did she gather all of her stuff? A bunch of old clothes, a broken lamp, stuff that she considered not worth keeping. And then she took the Bible and tossed that in there as well. Now, I told you before, I'm not good at math. But if I've got it figured right, if she got this when she was 14 from her grandparents, back in 1996, she would be 40 years old today. And I was wondering this morning, where is she? I wonder what her life's been like the last 26 years. I wonder how things have gone. Has she made poor choices? Is she addicted to drugs or alcohol? 
Is she married? Is she divorced by now? Is she happy? Is she depressed? Is she bitter? Is she anger? angry? Is she, is she even still alive? Her grandparents gave her the greatest physical gift she could have ever received, a book that tells her how to be reconciled with God, and yet she tossed it into a bin that went to a secondhand store. Candace and Tori, don't be like the majority of Americans who own Bibles and never read them. Don't be like Jamie Nelson, who was confirmed in her church but never had that faith confirmed in her heart. Read your Bibles and ask you, ask God to show Jesus to you in the pages you read. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that by perseverance and the encouragement of Scripture, you might have hope. There is no hope outside of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and God, I, th- I do thank you for Candace and Tori. I tell them almost every week, why do we do this? Why does Suzanne do this? Why does Pastor Chris do this? Why do we teach you this? And uh, they finally got the answer right, because you love us. And as I said, because I want to spend eternity with them. I want them to know you. But only you can open up hearts. But that will never happen apart from them hearing the word of God. I pray for them. I thank you for the time that we have had. I thank you for the great discussions we've had. I thank you for the questions they've asked and the questions they've answered. And Father and God, I pray that it's not just a passing fad, but that it would take root in their heart and they would find joy. I pray for everyone here who doesn't know you, Lord. We've got people in our church who don't know you. I pray that you'd open up their hearts so that they would believe in Jesus and find great joy that comes from being reconciled to you. So bless them now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.